as Eric pointed out in the catechism class today, one of the glorious things about the law is that it drives us to Christ. It should drive us to Christ as we look and we, 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 uh, we examine ourselves in light of the law and realize that apart from Christ, we're, we're undone. So, uh, But you know what's amazing is that Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. When you're opening up the catechism, was, what, what commandment was that? Nine. The ninth commandment. And you're like, man, all these the, the corrosions and the corruptions in the heart. And then you remember there was never a single time in the life of Christ when he had a sinful, even emotion or thought. I mean, that's amazing. For 33 years, completely perfect. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, open our eyes as we open your word. Illuminate our minds. Apply your word to us, O oh God. Give us grace to behold, to behold the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you. For his life, we thank you, O oh God, that you've recorded this for us in this book, that you've revealed these things to us, Lord. Apply them to us. Be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark eleven twenty two is where we are. Mark eleven twenty two through twenty six. Now, if you remember last week, I mentioned actually probably three weeks ago uh, that this whole section right here is it's really like a like a three part series here because what you do what you see here is is it all circulates around the temple so last week we saw christ actually go into the temple and he starts throwing around the money changers and rebuking those who are exploiting people in the temple but remember we talked about how that's a parable we said that's a parable of what god is going to do to the temple so it's a parable of judgment that's coming upon the temple just like with with the uh with the fig tree Remember the disciples, they saw the fig tree. Jesus saw that it was in leaf. He goes up to the fig tree. He's expecting fruit because a fig tree, and those, and it, I guess I'm assuming it's still the, this way today. I don't know anything about figs, but 2,000 years ago, I know it, it, in that day that whenever there was leaves that were produced on the fig tree, the leaves come after the figs. So if there's leaves on the tree, there's going to be figs. Well, he went up to that tree looking for figs because he saw the leaves and there were no figs. And then he curses the tree, and the tree withers. And so this is actually it's a continuation of that. So look in 22 through 26, because it's, this, is, this is part of that same lesson. Because if you notice in verse 20, now in the morning, well, right after this, the, the, uh, the scene in the temple, that very next morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered. You see that? So this is a response to what Peter said about the fig tree being cursed. So this is the response. And this is very important too. When you start looking at what the mountain is, and when you start looking at what is the what, what does it mean that the mountain is going to be cast into the sea, very important to know the context here when we look at this. You'll see in a minute. Verse 22, So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, 25 and 26, let's continue on. Usually we don't take on that much, I get it, but let's look at 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So, when you're dealing with this passage, now we've all heard the phrase, you know, you can move mountains, right? Move mountains. And there's the idea here where 
no matter what is in your life, if you have enough faith, then that mountain will be removed. And that, of course, has been abused by prosperity preachers for from the very beginning of time. I mean, since Jesus uttered this, people have been using this in a, in a false way. But in another sense, they're actually, you know, false teachers, they always take something that is true, and then they twist it, and they 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 exaggerate it. And so there is a truth there, though, right? There is a truth in the sense of, okay, faith, Christ, according to Christ, the, the prayer of faith, removes obstacles, right? It does certain things. Now, here's the thing on this passage, though. We had a guy, this is, man, this has been, I think it was last year, during the, uh, we were evangelizing at a tech game, Texas Tech game. And there was a guy who came up, and he was saying he was an apostle, and he can do all these really cool things, and he's offering this information to us. And we're just kind of listening, and like, whoa. And when you evangelize, it's a beautiful thing, because you run into everybody. So he's just like sharing this information with us. Well, we're standing by a tree, and he's like, yeah, I've done this, and I've done that. And we're standing by a tree, and he's saying he's an apostle this, and that's why the apostles. So someone challenged him to remove the tree because he was talking about how he can move mountains. And the guy said, well, what about a tree? Can you move a tree? And he's like, of course I can move a tree. I'm like, well, okay, well, can you move that tree? Of course I can. He's dead serious, right? Of course I can do that. All right, well. Do it. Let's see it. So he closes his eyes. He points at the tree, and he starts he starts shouting at the tree to be moved. Right, and of course, you know it's lamentable, but it's it's kind of we're kind of like do we do we laugh? Do we is this? It's sad though. It's sad, right? Because he's genuinely thinking. Okay, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, I want that tree to move to be gone, and, and the tree's not budging. And so you're looking at it, and it's like okay, and everything is just kind of shot. We're saying, well. I mean, what do you do with that, man? I mean, right? Here's my point, though. There's another. If you've read Dostoevsky, um, Olivia, I know we've, we've Olivia likes Dostoevsky, right? So if you've read, and I'm sure others too, I hope, right? Dostoevsky, man, he's a marvelous Russian writer. But in the uh, Brothers Karamazov, he's got a he he's got a character in there that's talking about a man who is being persecuted by a Muslim, and the man who is a the, recounting the tell about this Christian being persecuted by a Muslim, the Muslim says, do you believe in Jesus? And the Christian says, yes. And so the Muslim whacks his head off. Okay? A very typical Muslim thing to do. Right? Now, here's the thing. The guy says, why did the guy, why did the Christian not just recant his faith? I don't get it. And the other guy's like, well, what do you mean? Why would he recant his faith? And the guy says, well, well, think about it. If he really had faith, he could have called on a mountain to come and flatten the Muslim right in front of him. And if he doesn't have faith, then the mountain doesn't move, and he could say that, no, I don't believe in Jesus, and he'd actually be telling the truth because he can't move a mountain. And therefore, it's not like he's blaspheming Christ because he doesn't believe in Christ if he can't move a mountain. You'll see how it goes? And the other guy's like, wow, that's pretty profound. I've never thought of it that way. And sometimes when you think of this, that is what it kind of seems like, right? When you hear this kind of speech and you hear this talk and you're like, wow, that's, yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if I am truly a Christian, look, look what Christ says here. Look what Christ says. He says, have faith in God, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And you're like, he says it right there, right? 
If you have enough faith, you'll move that mountain. That mountain's going to move. I don't care, you know, and if a mountain moves, man, you can move anything. If you can move a mountain that's been there, you know, since the beginning of time, I mean, what can't you move with, with faith? It's kind of how we see it. Okay, now, this is why the context is so critical. Back up just a moment, and let's work through this. Have faith in God. So that's the precondition here. Have faith in God. What does it mean to have faith? Well, it's the opposite of doubting. See, verse 23, he says, For whoever, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, right? So faith in God is the opposite of doubting in your heart. Faith in God is, if you go and you read Hebrews, let's turn to Hebrews 11 just for a moment, because there you're going to have some biblical definitions of what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or conviction of things not seen. For by it, by what? By faith, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. The people that are about to be named in, in chapter 11. But look at verse 5. Okay, And everything actually in this is about faith. By faith, Abel. Uh, verse 4, by fa- uh, verse 5, by faith, Enoch. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, right? So everybody in the history of the church, if you're in Christ, you've had, you have faith, right? We all know that you're saved by, not by works, but by faith. We know. That's what we've, we've you know, the, we preach that. The scriptures show that. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by what? Your trust in Christ. Verse 6, but without faith... It is impossible to please him. Please who? God. It's impossible to please God without faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Okay? So that's the precondition that Christ sets up here in chapter 11. So faith is the precondition. Have faith in God. You have faith in God. We say, yes, I have faith in God. Right? By God's grace, it might be a weak faith, it might be a limited faith, it might not be the faith that Abraham had, but it's faith, right? That's what we want to be able to say. We trust that we have this faith, we trust that we trust in Jesus. There's no other way to God, there's no other hope for our salvation. It's Jesus Christ alone. We hope, we say, we believe that we have faith as God's people. Okay, So that's the precondition. So everything's good right there. Okay, So you're like, okay, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm on board here. Verse 23, he starts talking about the mountain. And this is where, of course, things kind of get tricky, right? For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, meaning whoever has faith, who says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things he says will be done, you will have whatever he says. Here's, here's, here, here's the catch, all right? What is the mountain? That's what it comes down to. What's the mountain? You're like, well, it's, it's cancer, or it's my job, or it's my finances, or it's this, or it's that. Now, as you'll see, that's not necessarily wrong as far as how you can apply it. But in this context, that is wrong. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking here. Now, think about where, where is Jesus when he says this? In what vicinity? He's in the vicinity of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount. He's in Jerusalem in the vicinity of the Temple Mount. Okay, think about this. In the, especially in the Old Testament, okay, the days of Jesus, when he's walking around with his disciples, there is no New Testament, right? So when you have an allusion to a mountain, what are you thinking of as a first century Jewish person? What do you think of when you hear mountain? You think of, especially in Jerusalem, especially in the vicinity of the temple, you think of the mountain of the Lord. 
That's what you think of. The mountain of the Lord. You go back throughout the entirety of the scriptures. You, you talk about Mount Zion. You've heard of Mount Zion. You talk about the mountain of the Lord. If you go to uh, Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah 4, and then look at 6 through 10. And in fact, this is true not only in the Old Testament, but even in the rabbinic literature between the Old and New Testament, the intertestamental period. Same thing. In all of their literature, the mountain equals the mountain of the Lord. It's, it's, it's like a, uh, what's another, I don't know what the word is, but when you're talking about something and you're using another word for that thing, that's what it is. Meta Thank you. Metaphor. It's a metaphor. <laughs> yes, it's profound. <laughs> I should have thought of that. I didn't think of that. I really didn't. All right, Zechariah 4. Now check this out, though. You see this? This is one place, okay? But Zechariah 4, 6 through 10. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? See that? Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Here's what's going on here. This is after the Jews have been sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that was decimated by Babylon. Zerubbabel is the guy who's leading the the. the the charge here, he's a Davidic figure. He's rebuilding the temple despite the opposition. So the opposition in this instance is symbolized by a mountain. The opposition here is the mountain. And what's going to happen? It's going to be flattened by the Lord, by Yahweh. The Lord is going to flatten any opposition, any obstacle that comes against the rebuilding of the temple. Now don't hear me say that we're talking like third temple stuff. That's not... That's not even on the right. Okay, we're talking about anyone, when we say temple here, we're talking about anyone who opposes the work of God is going to be flattened. That's what this is saying. And here Christ comes, so this is, this is, this is what Jesus is going to do. You remember Zerubbabel, they built this temple, and in some, some of your, uh, like if you have an ESV commentary, they'll show you this picture of what that temple looked like, the second temple, and it's like a pitiful stone, not, not Herod's temple. He comes in and he really, he revamps it, right? But remember the temple that people are looking at and some people are crying because they're like, man, they remember the first temple and now they're looking at this and they're like, man, this is, this is a major downgrade. But others are rejoicing because they didn't see that first temple. So they're just happy they have a temple. They're thankful. So they're, but this is, so Zerubbabel comes in and he begins to rebuild it. But this is the thing. And then, of course, Herod's going to add on to it. But what's going to happen to that temple? That temple is going to be destroyed. That temple is going to be flattened. And the point is, is that Christ is the temple. So you don't need the physical structure anymore. Why? Because Christ's body is the temple and his resurrected body. So what's going on here is that Jesus is going to do what Zerubbabel was meant to do as far as rebuilding this temple despite opposition. It's hard to get this in a sense. Let's go back to Mark. It's hard to get this because we've been looking at the life of Christ out of the gospel of Mark for like a year and a half. So when you take it bit by bit like this, it's hard to remember all of the conflict that's come his way over the last three years of his life. But if you back up and you just remember, if you recount going all the way back, and you've, if you've read the gospel, if you've read any gospel, you know what I'm talking about. The moment he's baptized, and actually even when he's born, right? He's two years old and Herod's trying to kill him. But when he's baptized and he begins public ministry, from that day forward, there's constant opposition and conflict. 
There's constant opposition to what he's teaching, to what he's doing. And so that, in a sense, is what is going on here when you're talking about this situation where what is the, the temple has become the enemy, in a sense. Those who should be the ones who are promoting this and calling upon the Messiah and believing in the Messiah, they're the ones that are looking at Jesus and calling him Beelzebul. They're calling him a demon-possessed. They're saying, this guy's, a, this guy's a false teacher. To this day, if you talk to Jews, man, they will tell you Jesus was a deceiver. He was a false teacher. And so what Jesus is saying here is now, if you look at what's going on with this mountain, look what he says. What's going to happen to the mountain? It's going to be cast into the sea. What does that mean? Well, that means if you look again, going back to the illusions that you have in the Old Testament, because if you're a first century Jew, that's what you'd be thinking of. The sea is a... It represents chaos. The sea represents destruction. This is talking about the total upheaval and removal of that obstacle, of that, of that, that temple system, of the opposition that Christ is up against. A total removal. In the Old Testament, the foreign invasion of enemies, the, the foreign invasion, not they are enemies, but who's the one that, right, that raises up Assyria and Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar? Who's the one that calls on Nebuchadnezzar and says, Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to go into the southern kingdom and wipe them out and destroy that temple. Remember who calls Nebuchadnezzar to do that? The Lord does. Remember that? His judgment. And how is Nebuchadnezzar and his army presented? They're presented as a destroying flood, as a sea, as a conquering, destroying wall of water. And so this is what Christ is alluding to, that this system of corruption, this opposition is going to be removed, it's going to be judged by the king of kings. Because remember the con I mean this is this is right in line with the context. Y'all see how it goes together with the flipping of the tables and the, the casting out the money changers and the cursing of the fig tree. It all goes together. But this is what he says. Now check this out. He says, But whoever does not doubt, but believes, etc., that this will be granted him. Now, okay, here's the thing. He has identified the problem. What's the problem? The mountain, unbelieving Israel. Okay, that's the problem, right? And what's going to happen? He identified the problem, and he identified what's going to happen to the problem. What's going to happen to the problem? It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be removed. It's going to be cast away. It's going to be utterly wiped out. It's going to be made level. Okay, so he's identified the problem. He's identified what's going to happen to that problem. But you know what he has not mentioned yet? He has not, he has not mentioned the means by which this is to take place. And this gets us to prayer. How is this going to happen? It's like, okay, God, and that's why, you know, look, you can look at this and say, okay, this is talking about obstacles. Yeah, okay, sure, sure. In that context, it's a different obstacle. But yeah, in, in, this, in the context of our own life, yeah, we do have obstacles. What is it, what is the means by which our obstacles are leveled, by which the opposition to Christ is wiped out? And we say, well, the gospel is. Of course the gospel is. We know that, right? The resurrection, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, what Christ does, he doesn't come to just restore us as far as our personal salvation goes. That's part of it. But he came to restore the cosmos. He came to restore. You see this in Colossians, Colossians 1. It's talking about the heavens and the earth. There's reconciliation now between the very cosmos. Everything, the, 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 the curse that sin brought into this world is going to be done away with by the cross of Christ, by the work of Christ. Okay, 
But here's what's neat about this. So that is, that. yeah, that's the foundation. Without that, there's no point in even praying. But what Christ is going to show here is this. Look at verse 24. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. What's he, think of, what's he telling his disciples? He's saying, listen, there's opposition against you guys. There's opposition against me. There's people coming against us. There's people trying to thwart what we're doing. My teaching, they're calling me a false teacher, a deceiver, everything else. What's he saying to them? He's saying, but listen, here's, here's the game plan, right? Pray. And if you pray, this obstacle is going to be removed and leveled. That's the means by which this has happened. Going to happen. The agent of deliverance from the mountain is prayer. And now, here's the thing. Man, it's so easy. 2,000 years removed. You look out and you see the progress of the gospel. You see what's going to happen. Step into the shoes of the disciples just for a moment, right? And you realize that what he is, think of, I mean, this is crazy. He is telling these disciples that the temple structure, the religious system that has been very well ingrained and in place for, by this point, hundreds of years, and before that, you know, minus the, the few invasions of Babylon and Assyria, before that, you, you stretch it back thousands of years, right? Nobody, I mean, this is the most powerful. In fact, I was just reading this thing this week about Herod's temple. Herod's temple was one of the seven wonders of the world in those days. Herod's temple, it was something like the blocks they used were 32 feet long, 16 feet wide for the, block, for the, for the stones, so you, you imagine this. So this, this structure, Christ is saying, you see this? You see the temple of the, you see the mountain of the Lord here, guys? It's going to be leveled. It's going to be wiped off the face of the earth. So don't worry about it. Now, if you think about what's going through their head, they're like, yeah, right. There's no way that could happen. There's no way this is going to happen. The, this, the, I mean, this, you're talking about one of the most powerful, entrenched, and not only that, most unrepented and hostile religious systems, at least when it comes to their own Messiah that has ever existed. I mean, they're, you know, we've looked at it before. They think Rome's the enemy, and yet here they are rejecting their own Messiah. God's going to use Rome to destroy them. Rome is an enemy, but they're not the enemy. The enemy to the gospel at this point in the life of Christ, and this is, this is not a mark on you know, ethnicity or anything else, so it's not like an anti-Semitic thing, but the reality is, is the opposition that they were facing at this time were from the Jews. And here Jesus is saying, guys, don't worry about it, though. Just pray, and that obstacle, that opposition is going to be done away with. And so what's he saying? He's saying that prayer affects the impossible. It does things that, are, that is impossible. That's what prayer does. And then he says this, pray, believing you have received them. This is the prayer of expectation. You know, think of this. When you pray, do you actually believe that God is going to answer your prayers? You know, seriously, ask yourself this. When you pray, do you actually believe that God will answer your prayer when you pray it? Or is this just kind of like a, like a pious ritual that you're like, well, I, I feel like I need to pray, otherwise I feel bad, so I'm just going to loft my words into the void and check the box and move forward? Or do you actually say, God, I know that you hear me? Because remember, the precondition is half faith in God. What does that mean? God, I know you hear me. I know you're a God not only who exists, but that you're a God who not only hears my prayer, but you're a God who answers my prayer. You're a God who is going to deliver me. You're a God who actually 
acts and moves on my behalf when I petition you, when I cry out to you. It's like evangelism. People say, you know, we've all heard it. Well, why, you know, if God is sovereign, why evangelize? Because God uses means in order to save people. If God is sovereign, why pray? Because God uses means in order to bring things about, namely through the prayer of faith from his people. That's why we pray, not because God, unless we pray, God can't do it, but because God uses means in order to bring this about. So he's saying here, if you pray, pray is, or prayer is faith verbalized, if you think of prayer. That's what prayer is, like true prayer, you know, faith verbalized. Because why pray if you don't think God can actually answer your prayer? Why, why go through them? Why do that? And maybe that's why some people don't pray. And I would say, I would argue even as Christians, right? Maybe that's why sometimes you, you, we get, I mean, think of, think of this, think. And this, this is for myself as well. If we truly believe that God not only hears prayer, but answers prayer, if we truly believe that, would we not be in prayer all the time? Would we not, right? Would that not motivate us to, you know what, I'm going to wake up, a, you know, i got to work at whatever, and you know, and, or what, whatever your schedule is, you know, and I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go into that closet because I, got, I, I want God to move for me. I have things that I need to see happen. I have, I have family members who are lost. If we truly believe that God can convert family members, right, I'm going to wake up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a beeline to that closet. I'm going to... God, save my family member, because I know you can. I know you will. But sometimes, what keeps us from doing that? You know, it's like, well, I mean, I've been praying that for like five years. I haven't seen anything. I, I think I'm going to, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to just take a day off, and I'll come back next week. He knows I want my family member. No, right? This is what Christ is talking about. You have obstacles, you have opposition, you have things in your life, you have sins, I have sin, we have struggles in our life that we want God to move on, right? We all have them, there, no doubt, every single person here. We have things that we're like, God, we want to see you move here. We have to see you move here on this thing. So what do we do? When we have that kind of belief, when we have that kind of faith, what, what, is it, what does it motivate us to do? Pray. So look at this. Look at this. You can think of all the different things. Just go through your, I mean, I was thinking when I was first going through this, just the different examples. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the people that have been praying for, uh, when, when was uh, Roe? Was that 1973? All right, since 1973, man, you go back and you read Francis Schaeffer, you read R.C. Sproul, these guys are praying for this thing to end. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, that thing ends. And that's not the end of abortion. We know there's a lot of struggle left to do. But, you know, the fact, when, that th when stuff like that happens, you're like, and that happens out of nowhere, and you're like, wow, okay, that's amazing. What's going on there? Well, God is answering the prayers of his people. That's a pretty major obstacle. Just in the, in the, in the, and then you look at down the road and you're like, okay, well, look, let's talk about abortion at large. There's still a lot of abortion taking place. Probably the same amount. I don't know the numbers, maybe the same amount, right? It's higher. It's higher. So it's like, okay, so that's one thing, but is it, it's still going on. So what are we to do about it? What are we to do about it? Well, the first thing is pray. The thing is, you look at this, you're like, okay, this is a mountain. That's a mountain. 
That's an obstacle to people made in the image of God. So what do we do about it? We pray. And we don't just pray. We pray expectantly. We pray knowing that God can do this, that God will do this. The fact that we are in, and I've said this a thousand times, so forgive me, but the fact is still amazing to me and to all of us, I know. The fact that we are in the United States of America, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because we're how many thousands of miles away from Jerusalem? We're how many thousands of years removed from the cross? We're how many languages removed, you know, uh, skin colors removed, you know, I mean, cultures removed. And yet, what's going on? The same gospel that was preached over there has, has infiltrated this, this, this continent on the other side of the ocean and has brought about a mighty work of God throughout this country. And I know that, look, yeah, right, there still needs to be work in this country as well. But y'all get the drift, right? That's happening in China right now. It's happening in India right now. Supposedly, you go to India and you bring a Bible and you just start, you know, you, you go to the street corner or whatever, and you just kind of lift your voice and start reading. Supposedly, 20, 30, 40 Indians will just gather around and, and tell us more. We want to hear about this stuff. How does that happen? Prayer is how that happens. How did it happen that people are getting on this little boat, you know, and crossing the ocean? This enormous. Well, they're doing that because of the prayers of the saints. Lord, make a way. Give us a way. Give us an inroad to get in there. So that's the, you know, and I'm saying this to myself as well, but it's so easy to be deists, to be people that, yeah, we believe in God, but we don't really think that he's going to intervene in my situation. We don't think he's going to intervene in, 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 in our situation. He could if he wanted to, but he, let's be honest, he doesn't want to. That's how we think. Christ is saying the opposite. Pray expectantly, pray fervently, pray knowing that God is a God who not only exists, who not only hears your prayer, but a God who answers prayer. That's what's going on here. So, and we all have, again, this is this could be about the this could be about the nation, this could be about the world, this could be about your home, this could be about our life, this could be about this church, this church plant. We've been praying fervently for this church plant, and we continue, right? All the time. Lord, you know, we Lord do this, and what does the Lord do? He does it. Every time we pray for something in this church plan, we really get down to business. No more messing around. You know, we're backed into a corner. Lord, we need this. And he answers every single time. And, and so, you know, it's like you're dealing with, you know, I know there's, there's epidemics of, of like uh, depression, anxiety, pornography, all of these things. Well, what do we do? These are our struggles, right? What do we do with these things? Pray, right? Bring these things to God. Pray, pray expectantly. Christ is going to hear these prayers. We must pray with the confident boldness. Here's the other thing. Look, this is what Christ is telling these guys. If you could just like phrase it, you know, and I, without the poetic language, without the language of mountain being cast in the sea, if you could just, just like, okay, what, what exactly are we saying here? It would be something like this, I think. It would be something like this. We must pray. Christ is telling these disciples, we must pray with confident boldness for the present order of evil, which is opposing what we're doing, which is opposing the gospel. Pray that this present order of evil is going to be replaced by God's new order through the cross. So in other words, Christ is coming in and he's saying, listen, this work of Christ is going to be so powerful and so cosmic 
and so cataclysmic just in the just in the order of the universe what's about to happen is that every opposition to the gospel is going to be supplanted it's going to be destroyed it's going to be put down and you're saying oh yeah well i'm not seeing much of that so far and actually we are seeing much of that we have seen much of that the barbarians that sacked rome they've been christianized the, the, you can go on and on the people in china right now you know who are who are murdering Christians. What's I mean, what's happening there is that there's an underground movement of God taking place, and that whole system's going to be inverted so that the... You know, it's inevitable, man. Where the gospel goes, guess what happens? The nation is going to flourish, and those Christians are going to rise to the top and start instilling this biblical worldview into that nation. And then the nations that turn away from God, let's say like this one, what's going to happen to us? Well, in, you look at history, what does God do? In His justice and in His providence, if He doesn't bring revival, we can pray for that, we should pray for that. What does He do? Well, He destroys these kinds of nations, right? But the thing is, is that the Word of God prevails. Why? Because this nation is now a mountain. You see that? This nation is now an obstacle, to be destroyed, to be leveled, to be wiped off the face of the earth, the, the whole West. You look at the West, you're like, okay, well, all right, America's in the in the toilet. What what other country in the West can we move to? You know, let's all move somewhere and plant the church. Like, and then you look around, you're like, oh shoot, man, America's like the best we got. Even though we're the number one promoter of you know every LGBTQIAPK plus plus, you got abortion, you got you got what else you got? pornography, you got material. I mean, you go on and on, right? And now you're like, uh-oh. Now what do we do? Well, we pray for revival. We pray that God would turn the tide, okay? But that's the point. Whatever mountain is in our life, Christ is saying, listen, we must pray with confident boldness for the present of age. This is the other thing, for the present age of the gospel to win over the evil and the darkness. And you see this, okay? Because this is what happens. And by the way, let's go to 25, because this kind of ties in with this. Okay, Because this is what happens. As the gospel goes forth in your life, and you see this in your life. Now, the, we can talk about the big things, right? But let's just, take, let's just take your home. When somebody is converted, your inner man changes. The way you see the world changes. The way you see your sin changes. Your, your priorities start to change. And so when you begin to change... You want certain things in your life to change, right? I mean, it's inevitable. But then what happens? Well, now you're going to meet resistance from everyone else, right? Because they're like, wait a minute. What's all? I don't like this change. I, I, don't, I, I don't like what I'm seeing here. But you continue to change, and you're changing every your behavior. Things are changing. Well, there's resistance now to that change. And so when, that's, when that resistance comes, that resistance can come through persecution. That resistance can come, you know, just people, um, I don't know, I mean, bad-mouthing you on Facebook or something like that. You know, it could be anything, right? That, but the resistance comes. And so what happens when that resistance hits? What do we do? What are we prone to do? Get bitter, resentful, hold grudges, be upset, hold on to things, Right? This is why Christ, look what he says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. As this is taking place, as the gospel is going forth, as the gospel is leveling these mountains, as the gospel is advancing, guess what you're going to come up against? Fierce, wicked persecution. 
People are going to hate you. People are going to spit on you. He's telling his disciples this. People are going to arrest you. People are going to, some of you guys are going to lose your head. Some of you guys, Peter, you're going to be crucified upside down. That's what's going to happen to you. That's your future, Peter. So the gospel is going to be victorious, The gospel, but you, Peter, you're going to be hung upside down on a cross. But when that happens, here's the proper posture that you should have towards the people that are persecuting you, putting you on a cross, out for your head, trying to kill you, trying to kill your kids, everything else. This is the posture. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That's heavy. That's impossible for the flesh. You're not going to, right? You don't want that. But here's what he says. Why? That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now think. He says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. You're like, oh. Yeah, right? What's he saying here? Why is this so important? Because here's why. It does not matter how fierce or hostile people treat you. We, when I say it doesn't matter, what I mean by that is it never, we never, and I'm speaking to myself because I know how hard this is, we never have the justification or excuse for not forgiving someone. I don't care. This is, and think about how, think about, and I know what I'm saying here. It does not matter what they do to you or your family or your children. You do not have an excuse not to forgive them. Think how extreme that is, what Christ is saying here. And he means it to be that extreme. Why? Because who are we to hold grudges or to hold back forgiveness towards someone when they do something to us? It doesn't matter how heinous or wicked it is. When God himself has forgiven us for all of our wickedness and all our heinousness towards him and towards our neighbor. Because from the day we were conceived in the womb, we have been storing up sin and wrath and sin and wrath from the day that we were conceived outside of Christ. Hating God, hating our neighbor. That's what we were doing. And then Christ comes in. What does Christ do? He takes on flesh. He comes, lays down his life for these kind, for us, right? People who are rebels, people who are wicked, people who would crucify him in an instant outside of Christ, apart from the grace of God, if we had the chance. People who would make Jeffrey Dahmer look like you know, who's a really nice guy? Will, <laughs> right? But that's what, that's what, oh, we would, we would be worse than Jeffrey Dahmer. We would be worse than Adolf Hitler. We would be worse. We would do things that are so monstrous and heinous. We can't even imagine what we would do apart from the grace of God. And so who are we to turn around and say, well, I'm not forgiving them because of what they've done to us. And you all know the parables that Christ gives. He's like, oh yeah, really? Really? You want to, you want to go there? What they've done to you? What have you done to God? What have you done to your neighbor? And yet, how does God treat you? He forgives you. He loves you. He loves you so much, He gave His, his Son to die for you. So that's why He's saying it. doesn't, And that's where this idea comes. If you, don't, if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I get that we struggle, and I struggle. We, I get that this is a very... Real thing, when you have things that you struggle to forgive others about. That is a very real situation. So what do we do? The good news is, is that in Christ, our sins are forgiven, even our bitterness, even our resentment. But what we do with this is we bring them to Christ. And we, by God's grace, get a fresh glimpse of the gospel, what Christ has done for us, 
how He has loved us this much, how though we were sinners, though we were dead in our sins, though we were, we were, we were malicious in our thoughts towards God even and towards our neighbor, Christ has bestowed His love on us, not His wrath. In fact, Christ took the curse of God, the wrath of God on Himself so that we could be spared that. See that? So it does not matter. Look, this is the, the reality is, is, I bet all of us, me included for sure, we have people, we have things that have happened to us that we are struggling to forgive, right? We are struggling with, like, man, I, but it's so pleasurable to hold on to this thing and to, to, to have this, this type of, uh, this, this, this type of, because it is, it's kind of like you get to get back at the person that you're angry by holding this resentment, but really it makes you miserable. It makes me miserable. Not the person, right? So we bring that to God. Lord, here it is. And that's what he's telling his disciples to do. No personal malice, no aggression, no vindictiveness. Stay tender, stay pliant, stay, stay warm, stay sensitive. And that too requires prayer. But you know what? Sometimes those mountains can be our own self. We're the obstacle. We're the problem. So we need to bring this to the Lord too. And that's the beauty of the gospel though. And this is, as we close, look, this is what happens. The earth-shattering, and this is what Christ is saying, the earth-shattering consequence of the Messiah's arrival and enthronement is this. Number one, the gospel advances. The mountains are removed. The opposition is removed. But in the process, okay, so that means the enemies are subdued, the enemies are put down. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ is reigning until all his enemies are put under his feet. So he's reigning right now, and his enemies are in the process of being put under his feet. But there's still enemies out there. So what happens as, as the gospel goes forward, and as we continue to grow in our Christian life, there is resistance and there is, there is backlash. And so what happens is in the midst of the gospel advancing in our homes, in our lives, at work, in our nation, what's going to happen? There's going to be great suffering, and there's going to be great conflict, and there's going to be great trials. So how is this going to happen? How is the gospel going to advance in our life, in our work, in our homes, in our nation? It's through prayer. It's through prayer, and it's through forgiveness. Think of that. Because you can't have true prayer. That's what he's saying. How can you pray if you haven't forgiven. You see? So that's what he's saying. So that's the beauty, man. We can be hopeful. We can be very hopeful that in the gospel, the gospel is going to prevail over our enemies, over our, you know, whatever mountains. I hate to make it so trite, you know. Or, but truly, those obstacles in your way, go to God expectantly about these things. But at the same time, don't forget your inner man. Don't forget that inner state. But no. Know that Christ, Christ is victorious. If Christ was, it, look, if he, if he loves us so much, He was willing to lay down His life for us, don't you know He is going to help us out with these obstacles? Don't you know He is going to be removing these, especially these big obstacles as far as the gospel goes, but also in your own life and in my own life, don't you know if, he's, if He loves us so much, He's willing to lay down His life for us. He's not just going to leave us to figure out our problems to our, on our own going to help us in the midst of these things. So go to Him expectantly in prayer. Let's pray. Oh Christ, we do praise You. We praise You for Your example. We praise You, O oh God, that 
that you have loved us, Lord, these uh, us who were your enemies, us who were outside of Christ, living for ourselves. And yet, Lord, we, we, we see what great love you have for us in the gospel. In Christ, we praise you that despite the opposition, despite the affliction, the trials that you went through, even on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Lord, what a astounding testimony of, of your mercy, of your grace. Lord, give us grace in our own life, O oh Lord, to look upon any enemies that we have, the resentment, the bitterness, the grudges, the impatience. Lord, please, O oh God, cleanse our hearts of this. Lord, it's so poisonous, it's so destructive to our own souls. Please be merciful to us. Give us grace to forgive. Give us grace, O oh God, to, and not just forgive with our lips, but truly, O oh Lord, that we would be cleansed, that we would be freed and liberated from any, any, any ill sentiment that we have towards anybody. Lord, we thank you that you have absolutely zero ill sentiment towards your people in the gospel. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. And we do that now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so 1 Timothy 1, as we come to the table...